One of the things that we find most recording about our own journeys in anti-racism and racial justice and social justice is really when we come across practitioners who come from a similar framework that we do, which is to say heart-centered, humanity first, and believe people when they tell you their stories, all of these things, right? Because these sorts of people also challenge us to think more broadly, more deeply about all of these topics in really powerful ways. And I'm excited to say that our guest today does all of that and more. Oh, 100%, because our guest today is so many things, a DEI practitioner, she's Ecuadorian and Jewish, she's a mother, a sister, a daughter, I mean, the list goes on. And all of these identities influence how she views the world, especially when she thinks about raising her son. It was truly an honor to be able to talk about raising multi-ethnic children with her in this episode, especially with her clear focus on the systems that keep us trapped in a narrative about race that, you know, frankly, helps zero people in the end. We hope that you sit with what she says and think about how you frame your understanding of families, systems, and individuals as a result. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your multi-ethnic Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. All right. So I'm not sure words can describe exactly how excited I personally am. I know I'm going to speak for Sarah, too. We are to have this conversation today. So will you please introduce yourself for our audience? Yes, thank you, Miss Sasha and Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Naomi Raquel Enright, and I am the author of Strength of Soul, as well as the essay, The Hidden Curriculum. And I am a writer, an educator, and a consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. Amazing. So we're going to unpack pretty much all of that. <laughs> but, you know, I want to start with a little bit of background, because throughout this fall, if you know, and this is to our listeners, if you've been listening to this arc in order, we've been exploring the biracial and multiracial experience in the United States, largely through our own personal experiences as biracial Japanese and white women, along with being the mothers of biracial or multiracial children. So I'm really excited today to sort of shine a light on that second part, the parenting part, because I find so much in common between your thoughts and ours when it comes to doing just that. So can you talk about, and let's, you know, as to sort of set the stage, can you talk a little bit about how you were raised? And I'm going to use the term biracial, and we can have a discussion about that, and how that has influenced your own parenting of your son. Absolutely. So yes, so I am the daughter of an Ecuadorian mother. My mother was raised in Guayaquil, Ecuador until age 19. She came to the United States on a scholarship to Tulane. So been in the state since age 19. And my father was Jewish American. And my parents met actually through the Peace Corps. My father was an English teacher and my mother was his student. And in fact, when she got her scholarship, won her scholarship to study at Tulane, he actually stayed in Guayaquil. And so that was an interesting navigation as well, that they were in each other's countries. And I was raised in New York and I was raised bilingually. So I am a native English and Spanish speaker. And I grew up in a home that was extremely open to discussions about identity, about racism, about history and power and privilege and oppression. I mean, these were sort of just dinner conversations for us. My parents were both educators and they were also very active in the civil rights movement. And so they really raised my brother and me with a strong sense of our own identities, but also within the context of both American and Ecuadorian societies. 
And I happened, I don't know quite, you know, if it's because of the way I was raised or it's just my interest, but my whole life, I've had this passion for understanding identity and history and systems and inequity. It's just something I just love to read about and write about and talk about. And so there's this passion of mine, right? I'd say it lies at the crux of any of all of my interests is this this fascination with identity and belonging um, and history. And so fast forward, and I am married to a white man. My husband is white. He grew up in Ohio. His family's from Indiana originally, went to college here in New York. And we have a 13-year-old. Um, our son just turned 13 a little less than a week ago. And my son is is presumed to be white. He's my only child. And so once it became clear that he would be received in the world as a white person, I had an interesting navigation, right, as being brown skinned myself, and noticing a contrast in how I was received and the assumptions that were made about me as a daughter growing up with a white father and a dark skinned Ecuadorian mother versus as the biological brown skinned mother of a son presumed to be white. And um, this really, I would say being his mother and that contrast has redefined my approach to anti-racism and my understanding of how to even talk about racism and identity. And it's been a real evolution for me since his birth and I think continues to evolve. I certainly hope so. But it's really quite a contrast in terms of growing up versus being his mother. And the main contrast is that growing up, it was assumed that I was adopted. People would often ask me if I was adopted or if my father was my quote unquote real father and lots of questions about my belonging to him. And there's the same doubt or questions about my belonging to my son, but the questions are now if I'm his caretaker, his nanny, I've been asked, you know, how much I charge, what time I get off work, (laughs) which my answer is never. (laughs) It's constant, right? (laughs) But that to me was very revelatory in terms of sort of the pedestal that we put whiteness on in our society and how the assumption is that the white person, even if it's a child, holds the power in the situation. So I hope that's, you know, kind of a a nutshell of of growing up versus parenting. I know we'll discuss more, but that's it in a nutshell. Um, Thank you so much for sharing. I think while you were discussing your background, I was thinking of even more things we have, we all three of us have in common, including having an immigrant parent, you know, and also just how we've been perceived in the world. And coming from me having a Japanese immigrant father, I was just having this discussion earlier in the week with someone about when I turned around 19 or 20, the presumption was that I was his girlfriend. I was, you know, his wife and which to, you know, the 19 and 20 year old me was completely disgusted by. So was my father for like, you know, very different reasons. Um, And it was a very contentious situation at times because that was the assumption was that. And so I think as we build our conversation out. We're definitely going to talk about the assumptions that people have because there are assumptions that you and I share as well that we I wish we didn't that we're going to discuss later. But I want to talk about something that you talked about in your background, right, as the daughter, because I think there is something that you and Sarah have in common that I really wish you didn't is that, well, this part I think is great. You have both have had white fathers, but you lost your fathers way too early and you are both married to white men, you know? So how do you think that relationship, right, has influenced how you view your partners or your children, especially in this space? Because I think you two have commonalities around your children as well, if you're open to discussing this. 
Sure. So yeah, so my father died almost a year to the day of my son's birth. And so he's been gone for 12 years now. And not having him to physically contextualize my son from my side of the family has not been easy. People really, when they see my mother, who people presume to be Black, and me, brown-skinned, and then my son together, I can just see the wheels turning, right? That they're like trying to figure us out and make sense of what the relationship is. And to boot, we speak Spanish to each other. (laughs) And so I've often thought of how different it would be if my father were alive and how he would contextualize externally for the world that my son also resembles my side of the family, right? People assume instantly that he only looks like his dad, my husband, which he does. He looks quite a bit like my husband and certainly even more so when he was little but he certainly has elements of my side of the family as well and I often have wished for being able to unpack my experiences with my father but at the same time I feel like because of the lessons that I had growing up and because of my parents support always of this interest of mine and of my passion I felt very prepared to parent my son I say that being my parents daughter is what prepared me to be my son's mother. And I genuinely feel that. I feel that there's this thread that because of the home I grew up in and the conversations we had and the confidence I was given and the security I felt, I'm able to parent my son in a way that defies what society might have us um, think about ourselves or certainly him think about himself. He too is bilingual. His name is in Spanish. He's been to Ecuador once, but he's been. And I think with my husband, in some ways, it's been fascinating for him because he's white and he grew up in a white community in Ohio and really didn't start to think about sort of how segregated our society is until he left, right? And went to college in New York and lives in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's where he's made his home since college. And so for him, it's been an interesting navigation of marrying me and having these conversations with me and knowing how passionate I am about this and that it's at the crux of all of the professional work I've done, but then parenting a son who looks white. And so my son is received, you know, with this assumption of power and assumption of privilege and assumption of protection that he doesn't have to, my husband doesn't have to have the same sort of challenges he would have if he'd had a darker skinned child, right? If we'd had a son with coloring closer to my own or a daughter for that matter, closer to my own, it would be a different navigation for him. But at the same time, he's very supportive of us teaching our son all about who he is entirely in totality, as well as how our society functions and sort of the contrast with how he'll be received in the world versus his actual lived experience. So I feel like, you know, he's very much a support in that way, my husband. And then I sort of feel this, I don't know, like this essence of my dad, sort of, you know, his light sort of shining and, and, guiding me to navigate parenting my child in this society and hopefully making it a positive impact. (laughs) I love that. And it's funny because as you were sharing more and more, I'm like, okay, yeah, both our husbands are also from the Midwest. My father was also in the Peace Corps. So there's just a lot of layers in this that, that I'm unpacking. And I've said this on past episodes, but for me, the first half of my life was really largely lived in a multiracial slash Japanese sort of cultured home. You know, my mom and the food and Japanese Saturday school. And I grew up very enmeshed in all of my identity, though we didn't have the explicit conversations that it sounds like you had about racism, race, you know, identity and that sort of stuff. I mean, we talked about culture and history and respecting the fact that my mom's norms were to be respected and they were different than the white community's norms that I was raised in. And that we were going to do it because this was our house. Like I was raised to be proud of our identity. 
And it was only when my dad died, actually, when I was 26. And I, at the same time, had met this white Midwestern, you know, Canadian man who I am now married to that all of a sudden it felt like I explored for the first time what it meant to be white for me. And then we moved to Arizona and Colorado. Like we left New York and because I used to also live in Brooklyn with my husband. So there's just a lot there, but I spent sort of over a decade, I think, dabbling in whiteness. And what does that mean? to live with a white man, to have children who present as white, that the world is, is assuming is white. And we've, I think for our family, my mom worked really hard to instill things like language and culture and traditions into me. And even just recently when she was visiting with the rest of my family for Thanksgiving week, being able to tell her that, oh yeah, this will be great. I can use this thing that you brought for our Japanese traditions and that, you know, Misash and I talk about the Japanese house cleaning that happens at New Year's and this sake ceremony and like the foods that we eat. And she's like, wow, I love that you still do this with the kids and that you carry on this tradition for these kids who the world does see as white, right? And to be able to teach my kids that, you know, what one of them was going off on, I can't believe we were having noodles with so-and-so and they didn't know how to use chopsticks. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, you, that was like what you learned. Not everybody learns this. Let's again, remember that we do not center our experiences and not everybody knows how to do these things that you do. We did that because that's our culture. And so I really appreciate you sharing your stories. And it's every time I hear you're sharing more, I'm like, yes, I really appreciate your intentionality and your your awareness of all of these layers of influence that have come to where you are now. Thank you. I love the parallels. It's amazing. <laughs> Isn't that so funny? Well, I mean, we talked about that, but can I ask, can I flip it? Because there's something that you both have mentioned, Misasha, you and Naomi, like that you share, that people assume that your children aren't your biological children. Like that is to those who haven't had that experience, this jaw dropping, like what kind of thing. And I think publicly was exemplified by that viral video during the pandemic where the BBC was interviewing a white man and the kid came toddling in and the mom came rushing in to grab the child. And there were all of these public discussions around who was that woman, right? There are these assumptions that they're not your kids at all, or you're the nanny caregiver, like you were just saying, there's some other non-maternal relationship. So how do you address that when it comes up? And what do you want, I guess, white women to know in particular about parenting children that people might not recognize as your own children. Like what are white women missing in this conversation that you need them to know? Wow. Okay. So yeah, it's extremely tiring to have to justify my relationship to my only child. And I still have to do it, right? I just said he turned 13 and there's still looks of surprise or confusion when it becomes clear that I'm his mother. I mean, we had a birthday party for him and he invited some friends whose parents I hadn't met in person, right? And so he's close to these friends at school, but I don't really, you know, his age was not the same or not doing playdates kind of thing. Right. And so I met some of the parents in person for the first time. And I could tell because I'm so sensitive to the reactions, right. It's like, I just can, I can pick up in it right away. And I could tell sort of a little surprise of like, Oh, his mom's Brown. <laughs> right. And so I, even growing up when people would question if my dad was my father, I would flip it usually. And so when people would ask me, is that your real dad? I would answer, yes, is that your real dad, right? As a way of making them sit with why they're asking, right? And often, you know, even as young as seven, eight, nine years old, kids would just be insulted. You know, they'd be like, of course, that's my real dad, right? And I'd say, well, of course, that's my real dad, right? And have them sort of think about it. And so I think because of that sort of tactic that I use as a growing up, and just being, you know, tenacious, I guess, personality, I'm able to do that as a parent as well. And so I've been able to answer questions 
very matter of factly, when people ask me either directly, are you looking after him or for how long or whatever it is, or sort of implying that I'm not the mother, I just matter of factly will say things like, yeah, my son loves to jump on the monkey bars, right? So in a way of like stating that is my child, right? Just in case you're not sure. And I've also been very clear with my son about understanding that when people ask those questions or when they make those comments and those assumptions, it's a reflection of their experience. And it's not about us, right? It's not a reflection of us at all. And my parents had that same messaging to me growing up. And so it helps me to navigate that with my son. And I think for white women, particularly for white women who've been exposed to only white communities, right, have grown up and gone to mostly white teachers and mostly white friends and all this, to all of a sudden be thrust into more of a multi-ethnic experience. I think there's, in some ways, they don't have the same preparation, right? And so there's this insult or there's this anger, there's this hurt, all of which is legitimate, but I think is also unnecessary because it makes it seem as if it is justified for people to ask you that question. And for me, it is not justified, right? For me, I think you don't really have the right to question my family, period, right? And if you want to know who we are, then you just have to ask, right? And we're happy to share, right? But sort of not entering the space as if you have the right to assume I'm not the mother, right? And so I think for white women who are entering, who are parenting kids who are of a different skin tone, right? They may not be physically dissimilar, but of a different skin tone, right? I want to make sure that's also clear that they might look like them, but just have a different coloring, or maybe they don't, right? Maybe they're adopted, maybe they don't. But nevertheless, to be very clear about sort of the external piece of it. I feel like that's sort of what is often missing from the conversation is that a lot of it is internalized amongst parents and children. And I think being externalizing it is healthier and more empowering. And I think gives you more armor to create change and to teach your children to create change. I love that. I mean, you know, as Sarah was saying, when you're answering, I'm sitting there also thinking about so many ways that this is shown. I mean, it showed up a few weeks ago when, you know, I went to pick up my son and the coach was kind of like, to my son's name, is your mom here? And he was looking straight at me and like, hi, that's me. I'm his mom. So, but I, to your point, I think it is really tiring to continue to have to justify that. And I was in my younger son's classroom last week and was asked by a child, oh, are you younger son's name's mom? And I actually really like those questions coming from children because I want to be able to have this discussion openly with children. I want them to feel like this is something we should be talking about because I think a lot of times to your point about externalizing as well, this is we have continually told people not to talk about that, not to, that this is, you know, we have sort of one perception. And if your perception is outside of that norm, then we just don't discuss it. And so I think that to be able to have children talk about this openly, to have families talk about this openly. So the assumption isn't that this can't be your family, but that we have so many different types of families out there. I think that that for me is where I always want to land or or want to continue to maneuver the conversation along. I have a question about that. If you don't mind me asking you both, because I feel like I have spoken to, we have a lot of au pairs in our neighborhood, for example, and I've spoken to a lot of white women in our area who've said, 
okay, so is it, should I then assume that the au pairs might be the kids' moms? And like, how do I approach it? And I guess I have two points to this. One is, is the point of your conversation relevant? Like, does the family structure matter to what you're about to say? Like, what is the need to make assumptions about the relationships of the people who are caregiving and not? But secondly, would you say then that it is better to assume that someone is the parent or ask a question like the one you said, Misasha, this child asked, like, are you so-and-so's mom? Is it better to ask direct questions with the assumption that the parent, that that is the family unit first, right? Like, as opposed to assuming that it's the caregiver first. What do you think about how to navigate that space? Wow, that's a legitimate, you know, concerning question, I think. I mean, I agree with Misasha's point about kids. And I think how we answer kids determines how they're going to feel about the issue, right? And how they're going to engage with the issue. And so I too have always welcomed and never felt offended when a little one has asked me, you know, you're Sebastian's mom, you know, kind of thing, right? And then I say, yeah, you know, my dad was white and he actually has my lips, you know, and I'll hold my face next to his when he was little and people be like, oh, he does look like you kind of thing, right? With with kids. For me, that is very different from adults. But I think the main thing for me, I mean, I'll see, right, what your answer is, Misasha, but for me, I think not assuming is the place to start from. I mean, that's, you know, as an adult, right? I think for kids, it's a very different experience in the world. And kids will just be blunt and ask you whatever, right? (laughs) About anything, right? So that to me, it's like, there's a whole separate set of rules for how kids will engage with you and with the questions that they have, or the curiosities. But for me, for adults, I think, not assuming is the place to start from, right? You might think that you're seeing the nanny, but maybe you're not. Right. I mean, sometimes I think this can happen with age, too. Right. That someone might think someone's an older sister or an aunt when they're, in fact, the mom. Right. It's the same kind of thing. To me, it's about not sort of the knee jerk assumption and then acting on assumptions. I think we all have assumptions about what we're seeing. Right. Or what the dynamic might be, what the relationship might be. But the difference is, are you acting on it or not? And so to me, it's you can have the assumption, hold the assumption because it's human nature. But how do you engage with it? Right. Do you sort of behave from that assumption? Or do you try and clarify first, right? And so for me, clarifying is essential. And you might have been right, maybe it's like, Oh, that is a nanny, right? Or wow, that is not the mom, right kind of thing. But at least you wouldn't have sort of alienated the other person and sort of made them feel like they had to justify their relationship, or even um, their personhood. Because to me, as a mother, it felt, especially when he was little, it felt so alienating, right? Sort of felt like, so I'm not in the mom club either. Okay, right. And I would be in these mommy and me type situations. And I ended up not joining them after a while, right? When he was a baby, I went to a few. And then by the time he was six months old, or eight, nine months old, I was like, I'm done with these, right? Because I would be in these spaces where the moms would just be like, so perplexed to realize that I was the mother of this, you know, presumed to be white, kid. Um, and certainly he was a baby, right? He's nonverbal. I mean, once he became verbal for me, it was like, hallelujah, right? He could also let people know what time it is. And that makes me happy. <laughs> right? And he would, he would be on the train and he would catch people staring at us. And he had a very clear memory of him at about three. And he saw someone staring at us. And he said to the person, he's like, that my mama, right? And I was like, wow, like he at three understood that the person was like, trying to figure out who we were to each other. So once it became verbal, it felt like, okay, now we're in this together. (laughs) But yeah, I think all in all to not act on the assumption as an adult. I love that. Well, and I think back to the moms groups. And actually, I went into that completely naively being like, you know, coming from a biracial household being like, of course, my kid is going to be like, however, my kid looks like this. Why would anyone question that completely naively? Like, let me let me just reiterate, because 
even growing up in a biracial household, nothing prepared me to raise black sons. And so like, I just didn't even think about it till it started being challenged. And so that to me was like a huge wake up call that like, for the rest of, you know, our sort of family's existence, this is going to be called into question. And that was really sort of heartbreaking and also made, you know, sort of the mama bear thing come out and be like, how dare you question this? You know, because someone messes with my boys, they are going to get a whole face full of me. And so Sarah, to your question about the au pairs, right? I'm kind of like, why does it matter? I think that people, there is a level of privilege and, you know, especially among white people in society and white women to feel the need to insert yourself into a situation in ways that you don't need to. And I think that if this is so fundamentally worrisome to you, like, is this, what is this person's relationship? I think you need to sit with why is that so worrisome to you, right? Like what fundamentally bothers you about that? Because I can tell you, I don't question a single family at the park. I'm just at the park with my kids. And you know what? My sole goal is to make sure they have fun at the park, right? And so I think that if your focus is not that, um, then you've got to keep asking yourself why. And I think it's there that you get to your answer of why does it matter and should it matter? And then keep that those questions going. Well, you know, talking about families and children, and I want to go back to talking about kids who are presumed to be white, right? Raising kids who are presumed to be white, because this is a very different situation than I have. And, you know, I love what both of you say about how you are raising your children to really be advocates, be thoughtful, be compassionate, use the backgrounds and the, you know, their own identities to sort of lead the way in how they show up in the world. So how do you do that with white presenting children? Because I think we have gotten a lot of questions over time from white mothers about, well, how do my white children, right, show up for others? And it is different with white presenting children whose identities are different, but how does this work for you two? And what advice and how does what you do or what advice would you give to white parents who are raising white children on this? Sure. So this is a very interesting and complex question in some ways for me, because one of the ways that I feel particularly transformed since becoming a mother to my particular child is how we navigate these conversations to begin with and how, to a degree, we collectively perpetuate the notion that there's white people and then there's everyone else, right? And sort of this inherent separator based on physical appearance in essence. And that was troublesome for me. And I began to think, you know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to navigate the reality of my son having, being privileged and being protected in the world in a way that I am not and that Black people are not and other brown-skinned people are not without having him believe that he is inherently different from Black and brown folks. And so for me, even using the language of presumed to be white is very um, specific and very particular because it lies outside of him. And it's not about who he is, but rather what others might be uh, seeing or thinking that they're seeing. And in my conversations with my, with my son and, and even in my writing in my book, I'm very clear about distinguishing between who people are and how our system functions and always naming the system and always naming how 
systemic racism and white supremacy and, and anti-blackness operate, right? Or to borrow from Isabel Wilkerson, one of my heroines, casteism, right? I mean, when I read her book, Cast, I was blown away. And I saw for the first time, truly, apart from my own writing, my own book, I saw for the first time the contrast of my experience as a daughter versus as a mother. And I realized, what? wait a second, it's casteism, right? This is what we have in our society. We have an unspoken caste system. And that is why my son is safer, in this society, right, than I am. And so I feel that it's important with children, with our conversations with children, and certainly with those either presumed to be white or who are white, to have them understand that distinction and to under have them understand that there's this system that was created for a purpose. And it is not actually who we are, right? And so I don't want my son, I don't want him to think that he, by virtue of his physical appearance, is separate from Black and brown people, right? And I don't think any white children should be feeling that way personally, right? I think even if you're white, your parents are white, your grandparents, right, your school, (laughs) I still don't think you should be seeing yourself as fundamentally separate from Black and brown people. I think if you see yourself in the other person, it's it's actually easier to empathize and it's easier to be compassionate and it's easier to want to create change because you realize, hey, this is impacting me too, albeit in a very different way, but it is impacting me and that's unacceptable, right? And so I've raised my son in this way and he very much sees himself in black and brown people. I mean, even as a little kindergartner, he drew himself, they did self-portraits and he did his with dark skin. <laughs> <laughs> which I loved, right? And I was kind of like, wow, right? That's kind of the opposite of what a lot of kids do, right? And it made me think that it's because even at that tender age, he already knew that that was part of him. And granted, it is naturally because he's my kid and, right, my mom, his Abba, he calls her. And so that is a very different lived experience for him than it might be for um, other presumed to be or white presenting kids or for white kids. But I think there's a beauty to it that can be practiced regardless of what your family situation or family reality is. I mean, I really think that that is a crucial element that is missing is mm, not perpetuating the lie of or the fallacy of, of inherent racial difference, right? And of whiteness is sort of this automatic privilege and protection and power, right? I mean, I think it's all about how the system operates. I mean, if I can tell one anecdote sort of about how I've had my son conceptualize that. When he was in Sos Remote School during the pandemic, and he was, um, they had read in his class, fifth grade, they had read Ghost Boys, the novel Ghost Boys. And the author is Jewel Parker Rhodes, I believe. And right, it's a book about a Black boy who is killed by a police, police officer, and how he after death meets Emmett Till. And it's a really powerful, powerful book and, you know, huge topic, right, for 10 and 11 year olds. But I was very happy that he was reading it because the conversations they were having. And he had to write an essay about Emmett Till. And they'd read an article about him. And he showed it to me that said, Emmett Till was killed because of his skin color. And that statement is one that we sort of collectively accept and, and don't question and don't challenge. But I read it differently. And I said, I asked him, I said, well, was his skin color the problem? Was that the problem? And he said, no. And I was like, what was the problem? And he said, racism. I was like, so he was killed because of, right? He's like, oh, that's true, right? It's different, right? And so he ends up rewriting the sentence and writing, Emmett Till was killed because of racism. And for me, that is such a subtle distinction, but one that names the system and that puts the onus on the system and doesn't perpetuate this idea that being black or being brown is the cause of, right? That's sort of just the catalyst of it. But the cause is a white supremacist, racist, and anti-black system.
I appreciate what you said so much and the intentionality between this internal focus versus bringing it out to the systems. And I think I am leaning towards adopting your languaging around presumed to be white for my girls as well, because it really does, you know, it makes it clear that that people are assuming things about my children. People are assuming things about each other. And that's what we're trying to bring attention to is this assumption. I also think one of the things you said that is really important is that kids need to be taught and can be taught from a young age about these systems. And it starts at something that Misasha and I have often talked about, naming our own skin tone, realizing that white people don't stand outside the system of skin tone, but are part of the whole beautiful array of skin colors, and then moving into appropriate understandings of racism, of structural racism, of slavery, like all of our history. You know, it's very important for children to understand all of this so they can then say, this is why when certain systems of discrimination that we know to be true happen, our kids can stand with their many colored, many showing up, fr- like friends, diverse group of friends, and know that maybe they might be in a different situation than them and act accordingly, not put their friends into more danger. I think the other part that I add to this is, you know, we have a lot of neurodiversity and visible disabilities in our home. And so what I tell the kids is so much about how this idea of questioning, what what's another narrative? What else might be happening here? What are the assumptions about the system in place that support or don't support what is going on? These interrogations can be used to deconstruct or address so many different systems and differences. And I think it's the same set of skills. It's so important to be able to start somewhere, but realize that this can be really applied very broadly to understand that we each show up with our own stories and yet society has been created with one set of stories in mind. And so how do we continue to dismantle and continue to face that as opposed to, you know, putting it on the the individual? So maybe that was a little vague, but hopefully you understand what I was trying to, to get at there. No, absolutely. It's interesting. So I mentioned at the beginning when I introduced myself, the essay I wrote, The Hidden Curriculum. And that essay is about how we talk about racism with kids and how we attempt to teach them about racism and to be anti-racist and to create social change, right? And that essay highlights how often in our efforts to do just that, we end up solidifying this idea of inherent racial difference, which is actually the opposite of what we want to be doing, right? We want to be naming the system and challenging the system and creating systemic change without perpetuating this notion that skin color is automatic definer, affinity, and separator. And so in that essay, I use a a blurb I had read and I reworded it so that you can see how it's hard, but it's possible to name the system each and every single time and be very intentional in that without perpetuating this lie that there's an us and a them, which of course to us as folks who belong to more than one culture or speak more than one language is is very much the reality, right? It's like, I, I really am Ecuadorian and Jewish or an American, right? I really do speak two languages. They really are both my native languages. I mean, I've had people ask me like, how can they both be your native tongue? Right. The idea of being like, what? How is that possible? Right. I'm like, because they both existed in my brain since um, I was in utero. <laughs> and the same with my son. Right. They're both his native languages as well, English and Spanish. And so this really being very clear about that. And for me, it felt that much more paramount that I be clear about it for my own child, because I didn't want him to. I don't want him to. A, feel that he is inherently different from black and brown people. And B, to feel that his privilege of protection and and power really in the world is 
a natural thing. I'm like, that's created. That's a systemic, you know, I was created by our system and it's perpetuated by our practices. And I don't want him thinking like, good thing I look the way I do, right? Like, phew, you know, I dodged, you know, that reality. And for me, it feels like, because the flip of that is that I'm unlucky, right? The flip is that, oh, it's too bad that you're brown skinned, right? Or the flip of, you know, too bad being a woman as opposed to being a man, you know, whatever it is. And to me, it's so crucial, particularly for marginalized people to feel that they're not the problem, right? That it lies outside of them, that it, it is a, a historical systemic problem. And that being brown or being a woman or being black or being gay or being trans is not the issue, but rather the systemic um, practices and policies. I think that's such a powerful way to frame it, too, because when you think about how you want your children to move through the world and how proud you want them to be of their identities, right? It is very hard to be proud of identities where you feel that this is the wrong, right, identity to have, for lack of a better word, right, that you are unlucky in this way. And so I I think that that is... Oof, so powerful, especially when you think about what are we struggling against, the systems? How do we do that through recognizing our own humanity and the humanity of others? And I think especially increasingly right now in this time that we are recording that, that is something that is continually getting lost in the conversations that we are having. And we have to come back to that and keep coming back to that in order to make that change. So I really appreciate you sharing that, you know, and and you talk about the hidden curriculum, which I love. And also, you know, I want to talk about your book a little, Strength of Soul, because I think in that, you know, you really talk about sort of interracial families, right? And how this concept, right, it has been sort of removed from the mainstream concept of who is a family, right? Like what we were talking about before, um, not only through assumptions, you know, that other people make about who gets to be in that, in that family, right? But the resulting exclusion of interracial families from that narrative, which is, you know, is something that is a constant conversation in our house, because my boys are looking at, for example, television commercials, right? Who's being represented? And, so, and you know, very recently, it has been, I, you know, I saw a black dad, Asian mom, you know, multiracial boys, literally never seen that. I was like, wow, this is, and the boys were like, oh, that looks like us. And then, you know, there was eight other commercials um, with white families and they were like, okay, well, there, at least there was one, right? But I think about how that was just, and, you know, I think back to when I was growing up, there was none of that, right? And probably very similarly for any of us, right? It, there was no depiction of our families or any families that look like ours in the mainstream narratives in the mainstream media, right? And I think this is a really difficult concept for people to understand who have never had their families challenged or have never not had their families represented. So can you, you know, talk to us a little bit about your thoughts around this and how we can do better, right, as a society? Yeah. Wow. You know, hearing about that representation was powerful, right? Because it's true. Growing up, I saw zero and we don't see it much even now. And so, yeah, so I'll start with sort of what I discuss in my book and then how it relates to this aspect of representation and of and of reflection. So my book actually was in some ways born out of the contrast of what it was like growing up with my parents versus mothering my son and being in spaces where the conversation, the aim is to challenge racism, but nevertheless, the conversation still relied on this notion of an us and a them and of who would feel connected to whom, who belongs to whom. And that was problematic for me, right? And I would sit in these spaces and I would think, hmm, there's not much here for a family like mine 
and certainly not for a person like my son. And so in my book, I talk about how we can have these conversations without perpetuating the fallacy of racial difference. And so I actually, in terms of this evolution I've gone through and continue to, I steer away from racialized language and I use ethnicity more. And so instead of saying race, I'll usually say racism, right? So again, it's naming a practice in a system or even for multiracial, which I used to use all the time for myself, I would identify as multiracial, I would write it down on forms and whatnot. I switched it to multi-ethnic now for myself, right? Because to me, it felt particularly, I think, because my son is presumed to be white, it felt that much more crucial to me to not perpetuate this idea that we do in fact belong to different races of people, right? I mean, we belong to different cultures and different ethnicities, and we certainly have very different lived experiences, but that does not mean that we belong to a different race of human beings, right? And granted, this has been weaponized to deny systemic inequity and historical inequity. And so I'm very careful about it because I don't want people to think that I'm uh, on that side of sort of like, you know, we're all human and we should just be kind. I'm like, no, 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 that's not real. Kindness is not going to get us out of systemic racism, anti-blackness, and white supremacy, right? Or casteism. But I do think that reality of being one human race and one human family helps to understand that challenging and working to create a different system impacts everyone actually positively, right? That there is this way that as human beings, we are all shortchanged because of systemic racism, white supremacy, and anti-Blackness. Um, and in fact, even economically, right? Heather McGee talks about in her book, The Sum of Us, right? That there is an actual economic cost to racism, right? That has hurt our society for generations. And so to me, that is a crucial aspect that is missing from much of anti-racist work. And it's either an extreme of acknowledging that race is a social construct, but still perpetuating in our language its truth, quote unquote, or the other end of only thinking about us being a one human family. And so I'm so, I'm in the middle, again, always. I always exist in the space between no matter what, even in my anti-racist work, <laughs> I'm in the middle. And um, I think it is crucial that in this work, we are very intentional in our language. And we are clear to not teach children, even unknowingly or unwittingly, that we do belong to different racial groups, right? I mean, ethnic groups, cultural groups, sure. Yes. But to me, that is an essential piece of understanding racism, understanding the foundation of racism, and the the intentional intentionality of racism, right? Racism was created to elevate whiteness and to protect whiteness and privilege and, you know, empower whiteness and to disenfranchise and marginalize and subjugate blackness and brownness. And so to me, we cannot in the long run continue to perpetuate this ideology and the language perpetuating that ideology and hope to create a different system and hope to create different practices and different understanding. So even in my own parenting, I'm very clear with my son about the language, right? I've always talked about racism. And even when he was young, you know, he would say things like race is fiction, but racism is real because racism, you know, gives power to white people, right? Like even in his, you know, nine, 10 year old um, voice would say things like that. It would make me feel like it is possible to do, right? I mean, I'm seeing it in my own son and it takes a lot of intentionality, a lot of energy, a lot of effort. I often am like, oh, that's not what I meant to say. I'm going to say it differently, right? But it helps me because I am then not only naming each and every single time the system, but I'm also creating space for a person like my son, right? In a family like my own, where we are not, right? We're a multi-ethnic family and 
that is the case for so many others for so many reasons, right? Be it biologically or not. And to me, there's beauty to that. There's beauty to seeing that families can look as different as we do, at least, you know, superficially, and still be determined to create a just and equitable society. And so that to me is all part of this representation and reflection, right? And I think particularly so for white parents of of black or brown kids or darker skinned kids, to me, it feels like there's a part of white folks, even often anti-racist white folks, who still in some capacity believe in sort of the inherent protection of whiteness. And they still believe that there's something to it, to their whiteness that is, I don't know, I guess, luck or good fortune in some way. And to me, that's very problematic. You know, I feel like you can't be coming from it, from that space, because if you're coming from it, from that space, you're thinking you are somehow superior to a degree, right? And I think that that is dangerous. And I think it's hurtful, certainly to your black and brown family members, and certainly your own kids. And that is something that I'm very mindful of, because I think being the parent of a kid who is presumed to be white gives me sort of this insight into the ways that people think about whiteness and how they kind of accept whiteness and that they they believe in whiteness. I mean, I say in my book that to a degree there's a belief in the quote unquote sanctity of whiteness in our society. And I think that's what I'm aiming to also dismantle and or challenge and dismantle, right? And I'm starting with my own kid, but I want him to not feel that his presumption of whiteness is somehow this, you know, this ticket, you know, or keys to the castle. I talk about that too, that he you know, would receive the keys to the castle by virtue of his presumption of whiteness. There's a chapter where I talk about that. And to me, that's dangerous. And I think I don't want white folks, be they presumed or not, right, to think that way and to feel like somehow they, you know, won the lottery because, you know, I was born and I'm white, right? And I feel like, mm, you're not actually born white. We've created this. It's a construction and we're allowing it to to continue, right, in a way that actually dehumanizes all of us, ultimately. That's interesting. I really appreciate that. And my whole family is going to be listening to me change my verbiage around the home. And they're going to be like, listen to this episode. Because the multi-ethnicity piece really sits and addresses a friction that I had felt internally that I didn't even understand. Because I feel like it then encapsulates for my family if I, we are multi-ethnic, it captures the fact that my husband's Canadian and we have different Canadian cultures within this band of whiteness that is also different. And, and I could never, there were so many words around it. And I was like, oh, but you have different countries of origin. And like it was multi-ethnic feels like the elegant way to explain my family in a way that the words I have used till this point did not. And so I very much appreciate that. One question I had based on what you just said about this presumption of white privilege or this power. One of the things, and I'm very curious for your thoughts, that I feel in my work and in the words that we do is because we are presumed to be white or multiracial in our work, right? We present a certain way. I have always said there are times where certain organizations that we do speaking gigs at are prepared to hear a message from faces that look more like mine than they are willing or able to look at from a darker skinned individual. And I feel like, therefore, it is still my duty to then go in and make that change and help open up the minds to do that. Is that what you are talking about? Or is that not what you're talking about when it comes to this privilege sense, you know, and understanding that there is a dynamic and using it to further this work? Wow. Yeah, that's a profound question. Because I think in some ways, many audiences are not necessarily ready to hear a certain message from a certain face 
Right. And to a degree, I think that's fair. To a degree, I do. On the other hand, I think we should open ourselves up more to the possibility of what people have to say and what their lived experiences have been. I mean, I think a lot about this because of the fact that my son is presumed to be white, that he will, by virtue of his appearance and meant in many spaces, I think, be dismissed, right, in terms of possibility, his understanding of racism or his wish to challenge it and create change because he looks white, right? And so the idea of like, you're white, you don't know, right, kind of thing. And I think there's a danger to that because his lived experience is what it is, right, being bilingual, you know, international, multi-ethnic. And to me, there's more power in being open to the possibility of what people have to contribute ultimately, right? And not assuming that we know who can contribute what. I think that of course is easier when you've had the kind of lived experience I've had, right? I mean, I have connected with people of all ethnicities and cultures and, you know, different languages. I mean, one of my best friends is actually Japanese, but she lived in Spain from ages six to 12 and then went to the American school in Japan and then went to college in the States. And so she has this international multilingual, in her case, experience, right? And she's one of my best friends. And superficially, it's like, what do we have in common, right? But To me, digging deeper and wishing to understand more deeply who people are and what their experiences have been and being open to hearing their narratives, right? Not sort of defining for yourself who's in the space, but being open to hear, well, tell me who you are. You know, what is your experience then? To me, that is, it opens up possibility. And I think it is a more powerful way of, of connecting and of creating the kind of social and cultural and systemic change that we wish for, right? Because I think this notion that we know who's in the room based on what we presume ultimately um, is dangerous. And I've been in so many spaces where I see that and hear that, and it upsets me kind of deeply because I feel like you would write off my family, right? You would write off my kid, right? Who, or my husband for that matter, you know, who are compassionate and empathic and open-minded or my father, right? Like for me, it felt often growing up, I would feel very protective of him. You know, I'd be like, well, not all white people, right? Kind of thing. (laughs) And I know that's a, you know, delicate statement, but it's also true to a degree, right? That we don't know who's in the room. We do not know. And so I think being open to listening and through listening, connecting is a way more, I think, effective methodology for creating the kind of change that we want and need. Totally. What else haven't we asked that you want to share it with our audience? I actually feel like we've covered so much and I've loved this conversation. I love sort of all of these different elements we have touched upon and our, you know, sort of the similarities as well as differences in our experiences. I guess one thing is sort of relates to what I was just saying that I'm big on asking questions and really listening to the answer and for the most part, accepting what I'm told, right? I feel that people know generally themselves better than anyone else does. And I think we need to give people sort of honor that and listen to what their experiences have been and find the ways that we have parallels in our lives and our lived experiences, and then also honor the vastly different ways of we've experienced the world as well. But to me, there's a real beauty to that. And it's something that I see in my son in a way that makes me feel very proud, that I feel like he understands this crucial aspect of not knowing who people are based on what we see, and really being open to what you might have in common with someone else. I mean, he's just written, they read in his humanities class, they read the autobiography of a part-time Indian. 
by Sherman Alexie. And they've had this assignment to now write their own autobiographies, but in sort of a similar tone, sort of satirical. And it's excellent. And he showed me his chapters and he has a knack for it. It's really kind of great. It was fun to read. And one of the things I noticed a thread, I noticed a thread and the thread was that he has really absorbed this lesson about not assuming and listening and being open. And so he has this, I'm not quoting it, but he said in one of his chapters, he said something like, I'm bilingual. I bet you didn't see that coming. And you probably think I'm from Spain, but wrong. I'm actually from Ecuador. I'm American and Ecuadorian. <laughs> and I was just so tickled. I thought that's so awesome, right? Because he knows that people are shocked when they hear that he speaks Spanish, that he's a native speaker at that, and that his name is in Spanish. And so to me, there was this beauty to it that made me feel like, all right, okay, so far so good, right? Like, and now that he's 13, it's like, you know, kind of those that like the lessons are there. It's like, he's now in this new stage of development and, and whatnot. And so to know that he has really absorbed that lesson about openness and and humility and understanding that creating social change is the responsibility of us all and that it impacts us all differently, but it impacts us all. And that creating that kind of change, positive social change will, I think, be the betterment of our society and our future. And so I think that approach can um, can help. And so that's in, in essence what I hope people will take away that um, asking, listening and accepting and, uh, and being the change. That's a wonderful takeaway. I think, you know, that's something that Sarah and I ascribe 100% to. We love that. And I love that your son, you know, has been able to really not only internalize that, but express that too, you know, on and that is what gives me a lot of hope, I think, because when I look at my own boys who have Japanese first names, you know, the way they show up and who people think they are before they walk into a space versus who they are, who people think they are once they walk into a space, they have navigated that from a very early age. And I think that has taught them that you can't assume anything about someone and you really have to listen to their experiences, listen to who they are, because they'll tell you who they are. I think that the more that kids can understand this and grasp this from very early on, the better chance we have, right, to make our society how we would like it to be, to recognize that humanity in others. So I think that's lovely. I hope our listeners are really are really going to sit with that one. And if our listeners want more of you, where can they find you? Absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn, although I will say I do not post globally on any platform. So if people want to connect with me, they have to do just that. They actually have to connect with me because <laughs> I own only post to first degree connections. I also hope people check out my book, Shank of Soul, and my essay, The Hidden Curriculum. And of course, if they would like to, to listen to other podcast interviews I've done. Oh, I want to mention that this is my 10th podcast interview. So it felt very significant and special to me. I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is number 10. So this is the way that people can um, can find me and connect with me. And I hope that they will. And thank you. This has been great. Thank you so much, Sarah and Misasha. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.